Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company. So this week on the show, we're talking about the new Netflix film, Passing, starring Tessa Thompson and Ruth Nega as two childhood friends who reconnect in 1920s Harlem, and one of them is passing as white. This is a film that is sure to have audiences talking for months, and today we're going to share our reactions to it and dig into some of the history behind the real-life practice of passing, one of the most complex and taboo phenomena in Black culture. Passing, the film based on the 1929 book by Harlem Renaissance author Nella Larson, is finally in theaters and on Netflix. The recently released film version of Passing isn't just provocative, unsettling, and captivating. It's got audiences unpacking their own assumptions about race and color, which is exactly what we're going to get into in this episode. So we've now both seen the film, and I've also read the book version of Passing quite a few times this year as I worked on an essay that I wrote for Vulture called The Fiction of the Color Line, where I examine how Black women writers have used passing stories to crack our facades of race, class, and gender. So we are definitely ready to talk about this movie. So let's go. So the story centers on two childhood friends who reconnect in 1920s New York City. So there's Irene Redfield, played by Tessa Thompson, who lives in Harlem with her Black doctor husband, Brian, played by Andre Holland, and their two sons. And Claire Kendry, played by Ruth Nega, who passes for white, and is married to a racist white man, there's no better way to say it, with whom she has a daughter who has no knowledge of her mother's heritage. The film is written and directed by British actress and first-time director Rebecca Hall, whose mother, famed opera singer Maria Ewing, has a history of racial passing in her family. Hall's personal connection to the novel was strong. Like She felt like the novel answered questions about her own heritage that her mother refused to get into for her entire childhood. And after she read the book, when she was 25 years old, she wrote the script for a film version of Passing in honestly like a couple of weeks, like I think it was 10 days. According to Hall, that script that she wrote nearly 15 years ago is pretty much like what ended up on screen. When the trailer for Passing was released in September, all hell broke loose. Like some folks <laughs> argue whether Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson could even pass for white. 
Others made memes featuring like Robin and Giselle from Real Housewives of Potomac. It was it was a time. It was a time. So, you know, fortunately, the movie is a bit more nuanced than that. Just kind of a heads up. You're going to get spoiled. You're going to get spoiled. But also, the book was written 92 years ago, and it's like 150 pages. If you get spoiled, I don't want to tell you, baby. <laughs> you have I don't time. tell you. I don't tell you. I want to know like your initial thoughts as far as the performances. Well, I thought the performances were honestly amazing. Tessa Thompson, awesome. And it to me, it was a very hard role for her to have to play because there's a lot of discussion in the film. But so much of mm-hmm. the subtext is in her face. It's how she reacts. It's her body movements. It's like all of these things that kind of really help to just lead the writing in the right direction. And I thought she did an amazing job of that. And then Ruth Nega, oh my God, like this yeah. is a complicated character, you know? And mm-hmm. I think it's one mm-hmm. that like I expected to more consistently not like her throughout the film, if that makes any sense. Like, mm. And mm-hmm. I thought she did an excellent yeah. job of illustrating the freedom of just like, I'm just going to do what the fuck I want. I'm just going to participate in, you yeah. know, whiteness, maybe even, you know, performative racism or, you know, anti-blackness. I'm going to, I'm about yeah. to kick it in Harlem, you know, with the black folks. We about to go out and get it at the party. You know, like in each of these spaces, there's a comfort that radiates off of her, even in spite of the like complexity around, you know, what you know is underneath, like this fear. I think a, a lack of safety pops up in the movie a lot. Randy, suppose I come too. Why? Because so many white people go? <laughs> no, because it'll be fun. I don't know. What if somebody recognizes you? I'll take my chances on getting by. You'll be bored stiff. There is like those two performances, which honestly, yeah. I think they both should be nominated for something. Agreed. Agreed. Something. Agreed. Oh my God. Andre Holland, I think, is the other kind of standout performance in this. And I thought he was really great. He didn't have quite mm-hmm. as much to do, but he's one of those people who always shows up for his part. He sells it. It just is really endearing. His ability, again, to like take a lot of the words and give them more complexity by like what he's doing with his face, his body movement. It was great. It was, it's not a very busy movie. And so there is a lot of opportunity to really just focus on like how these folks are occupying these characters and they did the thing. They did a great job. What'd you think? Yeah, I 100% agree. Like the relationship, not just emotionally, but sometimes physically between Irene and Claire, the way that they would touch each other or stand near each other. Like Ruth Nega, I already knew Ruth Nega was a really great actress. I think I saw her like Mm -hmm. in Breakfast on Pluto, like a long time ago. And I think she was on an episode of Misfits. Misfits, yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and I did get to Mm. see her play Hamlet at St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, like really small theater. I went with Parker (laughs) and MR, shout out, shout out to the squad. And I like knew that she was a good actress like on film, but when I saw her in person, like she acts with her whole body. And I felt like that came through on the screen when she was playing Claire in passing, like, like you said, Claire is such a complex character and she's holding mm-hmm. so much in. You know what I'm saying? She's keeping all of these different secrets from everybody, even with Irene and Brian and their social group. Like Claire has wanted to insert herself in their family, insert herself, you know, in their social group and with their friends and their friend group. But still, Claire's yeah. kind of this unknowable character. Like they all know that she's black. They know her secret. They know that she's passing. But you don't really get a clear window into 
How does she really feel? Is she really as isolated as she always makes herself out to be? Does she actually find passing Mm. as depressing as she claims it is sometimes? Like, she's still kind of like a sphinx to a certain degree. Never anyone to really talk to. Was insensitive of me not to think about that. Oh, I don't expect you to understand. You're happy. You have a true good life. And you're free. Free and safe. And holding all that in and juggling all those secrets at once, you can see it come through the screen. And Ruth Negga is doing so much with her body as far as like Mm -hmm. constantly being in motion. And like, she's just always in this frenetic hurry. And like Irene, Tessa Thompson, Tessa Thompson is somebody who I had, I don't know that I've really seen her dig Mm. into the material quite like this. Like, I feel like this is, to me, one of her best performances ever. Although I have to say, I have not seen Thor. (laughs) She was was awesome in Thor. And like, seriously, (laughs) she made, like, I can't see that character as anybody else. She was so, like, vivid. So I would say that. But this is different. But this is different. It's a little different. She's so uptight. And she's so, like, class conscious. And she's so prickly and, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) depressed. (laughs) <laughs> and like Tessa Thompson like really embodies that like she it's sometimes you're just watching Irene you're just like oh, girl yeah. ooh, like I just know that you just are unpleasant to be around and Andre Holland plays between the two of them really nicely I also just felt like there were some scenes like w- between Andre Holland and Tessa Thompson with their marriage I've seen the movie now twice I watched it to prepare for this episode I also saw it at, like a screening about a month ago and then the second time that I watched the film I really saw how Hmm. well-drawn and intimate. Like, their yeah. intimate relationship as far as being husband and wife, even though emotionally yeah. it was on some rocky rocky land, the way that they would talk to each other at night in bed, and one scene in particular where they're kind of mm-hmm. making fun of Claire together. I am so lonely. So lonely. Can I have longing to be with you again? Don't mock her. That's not fair. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just reading it. <laughs> You can't know how in this pale life of mine I am all the time seeing the bright pictures of that other that I thought I was so glad to be free of. Hmm. Come on, it's funny. She's very dramatic. I was like, damn, that is actually something that me and my partner would do. If we saw some funny acting (laughs) coon black person out in public, (laughs) like... Yeah. At a function or whatever. Yeah, it's we probably come up laugh about that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Rebecca Hall did a pretty good job. One, I actually seen Rebecca Hall in a lot of things that I've liked. And I was curious about her as a director and a writer. Like, this is such a, this is mm-hmm. a choice for a first film. And so I was... Yeah, it's like putting a target on your ass. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, you coming out the gate strong. I won't lie. I thought the the initially the black and white motif was like a little like <laughs> is a little cliched, but I think it works really well in the film. The film itself feels very delicate but determined. You know, there are a lot of things that are kind of like soft in focus. The music is very gentle often. But yeah, I thought Rebecca Hall, it was clear she's known what she's wanted to do for a while yes. with this film. And yes. she very much executed that. And it's also, it's brisk. It's a smooth, about 90 minutes even. And about the black and white choice, I wasn't sure about it at first. I think passing is such a, it's like a visual ruse. You know what I'm saying? It's about class and affectation, but it's also about looks. And I think that if the film had been in color, like everybody would have been like, 
would I believe this? <laughs> you know what I'm she lightened up that I would believe this. I think because it was in black and white, you're kind of just taking in shades of gray and it allowed you to focus more on like, not just the performance of the actors, but like the racial performance mm-hmm. of each character yeah. in a way that I think if the film had been in color, a lot of people would have been like, I don't know, Ruth Negga don't look white to me. <laughs> so I ultimately like no, I, I want to hear about your thoughts about like the themes of the film because it's a lot going on. Okay. One of the first things I was kind of struck by was the level of restraint. So what's kind of weird is like there is a lot of discussion about what it means to be passing, like mm-hmm. your comfort, I think, in your own Blackness. There is some like light class stuff. Like the class stuff is almost mostly in the subtext or like in the periphery, I think. And so with this film, I was like, wow, it's really kind of restrained. And a lot of movies right now, I don't know, are just like hitting you over the head with that. You know, like this is our point. We are trying to make it over and oh, oh you missed it. Okay, let's say it over and over and over again. <laughs> this is not that, which I really appreciated. Although there were some things about it that kind of took me out. Pretty mm, quick. Same more. Quick. Okay, so I won't say I have like the most knowledge of like kind of the more the intricacies of passing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't necessarily know how to feel about Ruth Nega's character and mm. Tessa Thompson's character, the two kind of female leads. Because you're trying to figure out how they feel about where they are. I was like trying to find empathy for the characters within me. I mm-hmm. kind of quickly went to Andre Holland's character, you know, who is, in terms of skin tone, he looks a little closer to me. He seemed to more readily, more confidently identify as Black initially in terms of how he's introduced into mm-hmm. the movie. Mm-hmm. He's very socially conscious. Like he's always talking about racism and the lived experience of being Black at this particular time. Even to his kids, who stressed as Irene the yeah. fuck out. Um, <laughs> But then there's this scene, actually, it's the scene you referenced a little bit earlier. And they're talking in bed, like, Irene has just ran into Claire, and she's like, what the fuck? She clearly is like, I don't know what to do with this. This is some mess. Uh, You know, in terms (laughs) of like, you know, what is she doing? And she says to Andre Holland's character, she's like, why can't she just be satisfied functionally like being white? Mm -hmm. And he has this response that is basically... Was anybody really satisfied being anything? It's not funny at all. It's revolting. Irene, leave it. It's normal. They always come back. Why? They have to work so hard at getting there. Why would they want to come back? If I knew that, I'd know what race is. You think they'd be satisfied being white? Right. Who's satisfied being anything? And Mm -hmm. that took me right out. It unsettled me a little bit because I realized, like, for myself, you know, there are days... You experience, you know, obviously some of the, like, consequences of living Black, you know, in terms of, like, dealing with racism. It's not fun. It sucks. But I've never, I don't think I've ever been dissatisfied by who I am, though, if that makes any sense. Like, I I hated experiencing those things. But there was a distance between that translating to, like, maybe if I had the choice, could I engage this decision to be white with this level of, like, empathy? And it kind of shocked me that this guy who is seemingly more comfortable in his skin, you know, he doesn't have the proximity to whiteness that would allow him to toe the line in certain scenarios like Irene does. He is black. Mm -hmm. Ain't nobody about to, there's no ambiguity. And so it was weird to hear him signal almost that like, well, I can understand why she did it. And like, you know, because I, I, you know, he was almost like, I don't know if I really like this shit all the time myself. And I actually don't know how you get there. 
I don't know how you have that consciousness yet still want the distance. It really kind of messed me up a little bit. And I will say this. I don't think it was false for the film. Yeah. There's a lot I don't know about this time. You know, this is a time where like... I mean, a lot of stuff was worse. (laughs) (laughs) I... (laughs) I don't know if you're trying to build up to something, but I mean, a lot of stuff was worse. <laughs> Absolutely. The shit was bad. If you were black around this time, you had to fight, you know, like, uh, yeah. all of my life I had to fight. But um, so many of the things I think that have happened that, like, I never had to really consider a desire to be white. Yeah. And I was like, whoa, I didn't realize, okay, this, like, everybody's engaging with this tension in this yeah. interesting way. So, like, then Andre Holland, so much of, I think, what came after this comment is, is a better realization of how frustrated he is with their situation. It's clear he is like, does not feel safe. He's constantly asking Irene to move. I know you think trying somewhere else would be easier for us. South America or some such, and to a point I agree, we should go abroad somewhere. Not for a while, of course, but when the boys leave, we could visit Brazil. Visit? He's like, anywhere but here. He says Europe. He's like, South America. He's like, I don't care. And that was another little signal to me like, oh, okay. This is another space where like, he wants better outcomes for himself, but he doesn't necessarily require any more blackness. He just wants to be. You know, like something about like, if you want to leave the US, I've thought about, you know, you remember this period of my life. I mean, thought about is is putting it very mildly. (laughs) But yes, you had a very distinct plan to actually move to a country where there are not a lot of black people. Basically, I was thinking about moving to South America and I was looking at countries and trying to find ones that had strong, you know, economy, like all this other stuff and little racism. And I got like close. The options aren't great. You know, at least for what I was looking at that time. I was also like 20, like six, 27. Yeah. I didn't know shit. And so. What's changed? <laughs> not much. <laughs> and so when Andre Holland's like, let's move. I'm like, okay, I get that. I understand the desire yeah. to leave this space. But then he's, he's also like, well, let's go to Paris. Let's go to Europe. And I'm like, huh. But think about who was in Paris at that time, though. Do you know what I'm saying? Who was in Europe at that time? Josephine Baker, uh, so many other black artists and thinkers or writers or whatever. Even later, after the events of this book, like James Baldwin, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying, lived in France for long stretches of time. If you think about it like jazz age Paris, which is around the time that it's happening, it seemed like a place where black people could go to flourish and not have to deal with the same exact strain of American racism that they're dealing with now. I mean, there's still a lot of passport blacks that believe that. Now, do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The thing about it, though, is I think I immediately recognize, well, like, everybody can't go. You know what I'm saying? Like, this Black family can afford to go there and probably quickly inject themselves, like you said, into this kind of like, I I wouldn't necessarily call that Black bourgeoisie, but it's like Black vanguard. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. it's like Black vanguard, you know, that is very kind of rich or like creatively desired by whiteness. And so... I started to realize, oh, this whole couple is actually sitting in this space where they want something different for themselves and they don't need it to be black. They just want something different. And so they both kind of start flirting with Claire's performance of whiteness or performance of like something in between in this way that's like really interesting and it's challenging, Uh but I couldn't ever quite get all the way where they were. But the thing is, is like it doesn't necessarily feel 
untrue for the film, but it sounds like it made you feel uncomfortable. It did, because I think, actually, this is what it is. I think Hmm. in my mind, even for the people who chose to pass, Mm -hmm. in my mind, I maybe thought that there was still maybe a desire to be within the community or be like sometimes sometimes like sometimes but a lot of times no a lot of times people would just quote unquote disappear they just make they cut off all ties with their family they cut off all ties don't don't come for the funeral don't call me and tell me how you're doing like you know i mean it's different some people did still mix socially and then with nine to five passing (laughs) it's true i mean yeah we'll get into it I learned a lot. But yes, there's there's some some people would pass nine to five or pass to go to certain schools. And then after they got that degree, (laughs) then then they're like on a ebony list of America's 100 top NBA grads or whatever. But there's varying degrees. Some people pass just to go to a restaurant and get some air conditioning or whatever, like Irene does at the beginning of the film. And some people pass to be able to sit in like a whites-only part of a restaurant in the South like 100 years ago. Some people pass to get a job. Some people, you know what I'm saying? They cut off every thread of their previous life and start afresh as a white person. But, well, I'm curious to hear, let's keep talking because I have thought, but keep talking. I think I wanted a bit more anguish. I think, and that's something maybe I wanted. I don't necessarily mean that it should be there, Mm -hmm. but it made me uncomfortable that there wasn't more pain for that. We mean like Claire didn't have, didn't feel more pain? So here's the deal with Claire. Claire is who she is. She is like, <laughs> she is like, when I am black, I'm black. When I'm white, I'm white. When you don't know, I'm not. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm whatever you think. And like, there's a degree of respect that I had for someone who is kind of living so unabashed. Like, it begins to unravel. You mm-hmm, Like, you mm-hmm. start to feel just how like boxed in she truly is by like yeah. every decision she makes. And it's clear that like, even her flirtations with Irene and Brian's lifestyle is like almost like acting out. It feels like she almost is trying to destroy what she's built or what she's created. But I kind of like, I understood and kind of maybe respected that, like, because it was just Mm -hmm. so far. But like for these folks who had seemed to be standing themselves up, like some version of blackness that people quote unquote would aspire to, or like, Mm -hmm. you know, like, or just occupy at that space, you know, black doctor, making it, they are, you know, they have pushed themselves, it seems like, into some sort of wealth or a different class. And yeah, I was just like, oh, interesting. I don't trust y'all. I just don't, I just don't know that. (laughs) Well, you know what part of it is too, is that like Claire entering their lives reveals a lot of their desires. I think Mm -hmm. in so many ways. Like you said, they both kind of covet Claire's ability to move between white and black worlds. She can get all the advantages of whiteness, but still come uptown and hang out with the Negroes and and have her friends and eat her candied yams as she, like she talks about she likes so much, which I'm sure she's not able to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's with her racist ass white husband. But if you kind of take Claire out of the equation, like you said, Irene and Brian have everything. They have a mm-hmm. beautiful whole entire brownstone in Harlem. They have two boys who are in great schools. It seems like they have yeah. the money to even consider moving to Europe. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? In the or 1920s as black people. What's that? <laughs> I heard South America come up too. Like, I'm just exactly. like, you could exactly. choose. They, exactly. They have the money to have these kinds of options. He's a doctor. And they also have this other group of like, like you, you mentioned black vanguard earlier. They're the black elite 
like bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and they're the black man guard. So they're mixing yeah. with other wealthy black people, but also with artists and writers of other racial backgrounds mm-hmm. <laughs> and a few white people who unfortunately have been invited to, I guess, the cookout, I guess, is what you could, is the way that you could put it. They have everything on the surface. And I think that Irene gets so much out of being the best of. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. She gets so much out of being the best of the Blacks. That when this woman comes in who possesses a lot of the same physical characteristics and has the same growing up experience and background as she has, this woman, she's living on another plane. You know what I'm saying? She could Mm -hmm. come uptown and play like she's in the black bourgeoisie. But then she goes back and she's married to an extremely rich white man and she can have access to all the things that whiteness can offer. That unsettles Irene. It kind of takes her off her game. And like bougie blacks speaking... The call is coming from inside the house. Speaking of personal experience, <laughs> bougie blacks do not like to feel as if their station is somebody else's place space. Mm. You mm. know what I'm saying? That's like mm. they want to guard that. They want to guard that they work with for their it. lives. Yeah. They're like, I work for this. Even if they didn't work for it, if they were just born into it or they're born light yeah. skin, or, you know, whatever. A lot of that comes through. Like you can see it sort of with Irene. And also, too, like, I mean, you see sexual desire mm. between. Irene for Claire. You also see Irene so stressed that she thinks that her husband, Brian, is interested in Claire or sleeping with Claire. And I think the film actually leaves it kind of ambiguous in a way that the book kind of makes you feel like maybe this is in Irene's head. And that was kind of interesting. It was cool to see that in the film. I was like, oh, that's kind of different. I like that. I would be curious to see what a conversation with Irene and Brian would be like before Claire's right. Do you know what I'm saying? Like Claire stokes the fires and additionally too like when brian says that thing about like who's happy being anything i kind of took that a little bit to be like this is a black couple in an intimate space at home sharing their racial anxieties and you know obviously it's something that made you uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable yeah. kind of but the thing that i also think about is like i think sometimes with a lot of the media that we get that's so focused on representation mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes we get these conversations and there's almost like a moral figure. Do you know what I'm saying? And this film doesn't have like a moral race figure. There's no race men in this movie. There's no race men in this story. (laughs) And like all of the people, uh, everybody in the film has racial anxieties and shortcomings and insecurities. And I feel like those intimacies, those conversations don't really always make it on screen. I think that because this is an older story and it's not really about representational figures or anything like that. There's not really that in there. And also too, the other thing that I'll say is like people our age of our generation, our great grandparents are probably the age of the people that are depicted in this film. You know what I'm saying? So like, this is pre black is beautiful. Mm, This is pre civil rights act. This is pre James Brown. This is like massive shifts in how we think about racial pride. Obviously, you know, we use the term race men. Like that was something that people would say back then, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's not like there weren't people like, Marcus Garvey or W.E.B. Du Bois or it's not like those people didn't exist back then. There were always race men and people who were impressing upon us like racial pride. But like you and I can access it. We have so much more shorthand because we were raised by people who grew up in a world where there was so much more shorthand for racial pride. Like when he said that, like who's happy being anything? It made me think about the fact that like Irene said, why can't she just be happy being white? It's like whiteness in that sentence, it sounds like 
a cure-all. Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So it's like, well, she's white. Why can't she just be happy? Sometimes I will say that when I see white people acting a fool, I'll be like, <laughs> you, you know just seem I mean? like, what's so bad? Yeah, like, <laughs> what's so hard that you wanted to mess this up and make it harder on yourself? But yeah, I don't think of whiteness as a cure-all, but I think we all know that whiteness opens a yeah, lot of doors. There's freedom that, to it. The blackness can't yeah. see. <laughs> and it made me think about who's happy being anything. Like, yeah, you can have, you can be white and you can still, you know, be unhappy and want to go look, search outside yourself for something else. And I kind of felt like he was referencing their marriage. You know ah, what I'm saying? At that point, we kind of have yeah. seen Irene like kind of sexually push back on her, like re- rebuff her husband's advances. There's also a lot of like lingering shots of her, like looking at or touching mm-hmm. Claire. And so we can like all this desire that is missing from her marriage is being transferred to this outside person. Like, it's very clear that he's unhappy in yeah. their marriage. Like, what do you say? He said sex is the biggest joke of all to his wife. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, mm, Yeah. He said it a couple of times, actually, I feel like. Sex isn't a joke. What is it? What is a joke? Don't be facetious. You ready? Yeah, he basically is like, you know, the thing is not saying. Like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> he needs, the only thing I'll say about it, I think you bring up a really great point. It was, I think the movie was challenging in a way I'm just not used to right now because there always kind of is roughly a moral center now, especially in like a situation mm-hmm. like this. And so it was really challenging to sit in this space where like, nah, all these people are just kind of in the muck. It made me really curious about Rebecca Hall to like know more just because it was mm. interesting to see someone create so much space for that wrestling with the parts of satisfaction with yourself that, like you said, we don't hear. And so it was just, there was like a mm-hmm. weirdness that like, I enjoyed the challenge. Like, I appreciated it, but I was like, wow, this is, my chest was tight. I felt it. It was intense. Yeah, I think you texted me. You said that it was good, but it was intense in all <laughs> yeah. caps. Yeah. Did anything else like particularly stand out to you like about the film? It is obviously about, you know, a Black woman who's passing for white, but it's also about all of the ways in which the idea of passing can apply to so many other identities Hmm. and roles outside of race. So, like, the often, like, sexual desire that Irene Hmm, has for Claire. I wouldn't say that, you know, that Irene is 100% straight. Do you know what I'm saying? There's some ambivalence that she has to, you know, the idea of being the wife of Mm -hmm. a man. And like some of that is sexual. Some of that also was based in the role of what it means to be a wife and a mother. Some people pass for straight, passing as a happy Mm -hmm. wife or a dutiful husband. Or like going back to that bedroom conversation, in a way, Brian and Irene and maybe some of the people in their social set out in public passing as Black people who have racial consciousness yeah. and who love being yeah. Black 24-7. When we're really at home, when it's just the two of them talking, that's when all of the racial anxieties come out. It kind of feels like passing is just as much about who you believe yourself mm. to be as it is how you seem to others, which kind of takes me back to like the central thing that really got people going on Twitter the day that the trailer was mm. released. Was A lot of it was like, if I saw Ruth Nega and I saw, you know, Tessa Thompson in the street, I would know that yeah. you're black. And it's like, well, yeah, we're black. So the movie kind of touches yeah. on that. Typically, there's just this ineffable thing that you know your own people, even if you don't know them by look, even if you couldn't always see it with your eyes. But racial passing has more to do with fooling mm-hmm. white people than fooling black people. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Black people will kind of know your tea and keep your secrets, Mm -hmm. but white people are the people who could really reward you for the whiteness if they think that you have it, or they could really harm you if they find out that they've been quote unquote tricked. So it's not so much about like fooling us 
or even fooling anybody. It's kind of like, who am I? Yeah. Who do I believe myself to be? And can that override anybody else's like, you know, expectations of me? Yes, yes, yes. It's interesting too, because like Irene has this whole show of who she thinks she is and how she feels about Black people and, you know, uplifting the race and moving things forward. And Claire wants to be like, you know, somebody who's down. Claire want to mm-hmm. be down. She don't want to be that be down, all though, the way. you know what I'm saying? She don't. She don't want to be down all the way. So she can come up and pretend to be down, but she's going to still go back and go downtown and be, you know, living with her rich white husband, who calls her my nig Woo. as a joke. Bruh. <laughs> you know what I mean? As commentary on, on how he thinks that she's getting darker and darker. So this was good. I'm really, I'm glad that yeah. we got the chance to talk about the movie. But at the end of the day, this movie is fiction. But the practice of passing is a very real thing. And there is so much really interesting history behind it. And I had the opportunity to <laughs> do a lot of research on it. I'm going to share that with you. Let me come back from the break. I'm excited. As I mentioned, I don't know much in this space. I didn't know much, honestly. And who what I learned. All right. All that and more after the break. Hey, this is Jeff Lewis from Radio Andy. Live and uncensored, catch me talking with my friends about my latest obsessions, relationship issues, and bodily ailments. With that kind of drama that seems to follow me, you never know what's going to happen. You can listen to Jeff Lewis live at home or anywhere you are. Download the SiriusXM app for over 425 channels of ad-free music, sports, entertainment, and more. Subscribe now and get three months free. Offer details apply. Okay, so we're back. Yes, welcome back. So we had the chance to talk about passing the movie, but now we're going to talk about passing the phenomenon. Dun, dun. I feel like it it's, needed a dun-dun-dun. <laughs> I read Passing, I read The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, which is a mm, passing yes. novel that came out last year. And I read Caucasia back to back to back, and then I just happened to read The Meaning of Mariah Carey. And I was like, oh, these are all the same book. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, this is all. There were so many scenes from Mariah Carey's memoir that actually mirrored a lot of the scenes that happened in different passing sagas that I'd read, but it got uh, me thinking a lot more about like the actual lived experience of people who could pass or really choose to pass. And so I ended up doing a lot of research. As I mentioned, I read Passing the book, like honestly, probably five or six times in the past year. It's short. So it's not like it was like, you know, super like hard. And I it's like, when you read it, you're just like, ah, the whole time. It's just like, <laughs> oh my God. But I learned a lot about passing. I mean, like, I guess... All Black people know some sort of family lore of like maybe this person passed or these people disappeared, quote unquote. We don't know what happened to them. But honestly, passing was not something that I had a really strong knowledge of, I'm realizing, until I learned of Mm. the novel Passing. Like it wasn't something that like we talked about at breakfast or that people were bringing up (laughs) in my family all the time. Some people's families, that is the case, but it wasn't the case. If it was? (laughs) Yeah. I was just saying, that'd be crazy. One of the things that blew my mind the most when I was doing research is just how openly understood passing was. Like, I think mm. for people our age or of our generation who, who, and for people like us who don't have like a very immediate family connection to it, yeah. it's kind of depicted as this big secret. Do you know what I mean? Especially yeah, because- there's a mystery. A mystery. And, and so many of the films, uh, films that have been made about passing from blackness into whiteness are based on books written by white people or their movies conceptualized mm. by white people. And they yeah. kind of also focus on the secret- aspect. But when it comes down to it, like, it it seems like in the past, like, Black people always knew each other's 
secrets and they would keep mm-hmm. those secrets, or at least it was social code to keep those secrets. But the phenomenon of passing was openly discussed in a way that's much different than how we might think about passing today. Black magazines like Ebony would feature like, a, is this person black or white quizzes? Um, wow. <laughs> where like they'd have pictures of a bunch of like white or light-skinned people. I just sent you an image from a quiz from the April 1952 issue of Ebony Magazine. And the quiz is titled, Which is Negro, Which is White? And there are 16 pictures of like light-skinned people or white people. And there's a key at the bottom to say, check your answers on correct race of faces above. So it's like, you know, obviously for so many reasons, I wouldn't expect to see that in a magazine now. But that kind of, I think to me, just shows how an individual's choice to pass was treated as a secret. But the actual like attitude toward passing, I think was a little bit more like farcical. It's interesting because we talk about like Claire's attitude in the film and how devil may care she was about passing. But like, I don't know, there's a piece of like, that felt shocking to me reading the book. If Felt shocking to me also watching the movie, but as I kind of reflected on the research, it's like, oh, like she's kind of ambivalent about passing, but maybe a lot of people were more ambivalent about passing than we're taught to think. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about that in that context. So in the movie, there's a, just real quick, there's a scene where they decide to go to a party in Harlem, like, Mm -hmm. and they're about to go kick it. And I got really stressed and freaked out for Claire because I was like, is there going to be any backlash because there's ambiguity of whether she is a white woman in that Mm -hmm. space, in this kind of predominantly black space, or because she is clearly passing for white in that space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Irene speaks to it a little bit. She's like, well, there are white people there. There, you know, there are black folks there and like they intermingle. But I still expected a tiny degree of isolation for Claire that just did not happen. And I think in, to your point, in that context, folks is like, all right, we, we in here, we kicking it. I know what you doing. <laughs> but, you know, like, but let's dance this jig, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's just interesting to think about that, yeah. So it's interesting, actually, the roots of racial passing. There's this book that I read that is really great called A Chosen Exile, A History of Racial Passing in American Life. It is by Allison Hobbs. It's really good. And that actually helped me direct a lot of my research that I did for this piece. It's interesting. The act of passing as white actually has its roots in passing for free. Basically, there were slaves who would be light enough to pass because passing is really about class. And class is really about, yeah, your connections, but Mm -hmm. like perceived class, if you're white, is really about what does your haircut look like? What clothes are you wearing? How do you talk? How do you carry yourself? And mm-hmm. basically there would be slaves, especially yeah. if they were lighter skinned, they might be someone's body man. Do you know what I mean? Or they might work in the home. They would be exposed to all sorts of like manners mm-hmm. of, of speaking and dress that would allow them to pass, to be able to get their own freedom. And some enslaved people would, they would either be passing for white or as free people of color. And then they would actually, you know, want to be able to reconnect with their family up north or to help free their family down south. Like it wasn't something that people were doing to like pass into whiteness, it was more like passing through whiteness to be able to be a free Black person. That's such a fascinating even aspect of, you know, the kind of like slavery time period that I honestly didn't necessarily connect it with it. Like the opportunity to learn and to study. You know, we talk about like the quote unquote house slave mentality and uh, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like where people, it's become kind of like its own stereotype and caricature. But it's interesting to think of like being in this space where you have the opportunity to learn something that Mm -hmm. could 
potentially provide you like freedom. It's interesting. Sorry, it just like stuck out to me. Like, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, I can't imagine. You spend so much time so close. Yeah, you're going to start to pick up the mannerism. You're going to start to like say, hey, and maybe I can use this. Just maybe. It's fascinating. Wow. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, even like the book shares certain like classified ads for runaway enslaved people. Wow. It's interesting too, because like racism, you know, <laughs> obviously if these people were light enough to fool really hateful Southern white people in the 1800s. Do you know what I mean? Like they had to be pretty convincing as Mm -hmm. white and the runaway slave classifieds, they'd be like looking for a bed wench who's hideous (laughs) and who has a flat nose and da, 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 da. And they would sort of like really bear down on these quote unquote Africanized features and, you know, these Negroid looks and they'd bear down on that. But it's like, well, yeah, well, if she fooled all these damn people and you look for her, it's weird. It's like they had to find a way to denigrate this person's appearance and manner while also racializing that denigration. And it's like whiteness, man, chef's kiss, 10 out of 10. They do it all the time. It almost is like when when they say like, oh, my home has been vandalized and like they've written like <laughs> nigger with ER on their driver. I appreciate that space for like, okay, you really just don't understand us enough to really get it. I'm happy for all the people who maybe got away. <laughs> Me too. Because, because, you know. I mean, whiteness will have you holding on to idiocy to your own detriment. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, also too, like between like the 1700s and the 1800s, our racial order as we understand it now didn't quite exist in the same way because there were like white indentured servants. And then there were like different types of European immigrants coming in to the United States from Ireland or Eastern Europe, or even like Mediterranean Europe, Italy or Greece or or places like that, where those people were not necessarily racialized as white. Uh, There was a lot more, I guess, like maybe more fluidity in how people thought about our racial order in the United States in the 1700s that really started to firm up in the 1800s. And so obviously, you know, this is influencing like how people are thinking about slavery and the one drop rule. And abolitionists in the 1800s, instead of being like, we should free the slaves because it's not Christian or it's not good. Mm-hmm. They were like, you know, there are some slaves out there. They're so light now that, you know, <sighs> people could mistake them for your white children could get mistaken for slaves. And then you're and then they could be, they could be in slavery. My children, they could get caught up and they could be put in slavery. Isn't you, you like that was actually in a, a real argument that abolitionists used in the 1800s. But, you know. There's so many different ways that somebody can come into passability, right? Like there were some people who could pass who might fall into the categorization that we might think of now as like mixed or biracial, where they have one parent Mm -hmm. who self-identifies as black, one parent who self-identifies as white, and then they have a child and this person could pass. But, you know, there also are a lot of black people who are light enough to pass were descended of generations of intermarriage, intentional intermarriage between light skin often privileged Black people or free people of color, like people who married light and had children light to maintain mm. that privilege. There's this this phrase, <laughs> Blue Vein Society. Yeah, I can't well, yeah. tell if it's like an actual social club or whether it's another way of putting the paper bag test. Basically, like, you know, you can guess what you needed to become a member. Like, you look through, your, look through the person's skin and you can see their blue veins. There's actually a good story by Charles Chestnut. A very light-skinned octoroon <laughs> uh, from an old issue of The Atlantic on the Blue Vein Society. If you want to check that out, it's called The Wife of His Youth. Yeah, it's almost like, I'm, and maybe because I am an obviously unambiguously Black person, race to me feels like such a fact 
But if you exist in a time where the lines of the racial order are more blurred or there isn't language to describe certain things or you can kind of move back and forth, to me, like thinking about passing feels so violent. And it is, but I don't always know if the conversation around it was always thought of as purely like this is a violent thing and a little bit more of like, oh, some people do it. It's weird, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or like it's a spectacle. So interestingly enough, like after World War II, because of Black people and white people fought side by side or whatever against the Nazis. Like, it just changed. (laughs) So blasé about that. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, like. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. But that changed a lot of people's, that period Mm. in history. um, It paved the way toward a lot of civil rights wins that came in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And so once passing kind of was like drained of some of its utility, a lot of Black people passed back over. So, like, some people who, yes, some people who previously had chosen to pass, they crossed back over. There was this family called the Johnstons, the New Hampshire family, and they, like, revealed their Black lineage in a 1947 issue of Reader's Digest. And that there, there was, like, a film made about their life That's that I amazing. still have yet to see. Yeah, there's all this really interesting stuff that happened with them, but, like, they did that, like, before the 50s even. And then, like, into the, like, 50s, 60s, and I think maybe even the early 70s, people opted to stop passing and they would publish these anonymous, like, why I stopped passing essays in black magazines. It became a thing. You want to know one of the biggest reasons why people cross back over? They ran out of money. They got sick of white people. <laughs> <laughs> they, it was like, obviously it was painful to be cut off from their culture and seeing everybody sort of embrace this black is beautiful, like, idea about their identity was hard. Kind of felt like, you know, it's like that Black Rolf meme. You're looking outside the window. Everybody else is having a good time. And you're sitting yeah. there like, damn, like, I passed. Like, damn, I'm missing out just when it got good. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. They would all say they got sick of being around white people. And their racism, their culture, the hate. I mean, obviously, like, you know, a cursory search of, like, a, a Karen hashtag, right, can show you just how toxic whiteness can be in casual spaces, right? So I could see getting tired of that. But also too, it's like at the core of their being, they identified most privately as Black and most personally as Black. And so if you're constantly hearing racist things from white people all the time about how terrible Black people are, it eats away at your psyche and they opted to pass back over. It's interesting. Like, I'm glad about the conversation that we had today. And I'm curious to see like where conversation around depictions of passing is going to go. I think that like the, the biggest thing that I learned was that it's tragic and it's violent. Yes. But there's also like a ridiculousness to it. There's yeah. like a ridiculousness to the hoax and to the ruse. And there's like, obviously people are always fascinated with any sort of quote unquote scam um, or lie. And I think that like passing the novel, I think the reason why it still makes such a good film a hundred years later is because The novel really understood that. Like, passing is about race, but it's also about class. It's also about gender. It's also about color. It's also about how you want to think of yourself and how you feel that you might be uplifting the race or how the race might be dragging you down. Like, it's about the ridiculousness of passing and even some of the dark humor in it just as much as it is about the tragedy. And I think that, like, that's why the book has endured And that's why I think the film is going to have people like sort of talking and digging in like we did today. Obviously, I wrote a piece for Vulture and like that kind of dug into some of the more modern passing narratives, but probably like the newest, I think, like passing novel. And I would also highly recommend it. I don't know if you've read it, The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, who was on an episode of For Colored Nerd several years ago. Gotta check it out. Britt is amazing. I sadly have not gotten to The Vanishing Half. Oh, man. 
I tell you, yeah. you will read it in a day. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to start this book. I stayed up. I read it in a day. It was like, I, it was in and out. Like, it's interesting to read a novel about passing from the perspective of somebody living 100 years almost, basically, after Nella Larson. There's a whole other dimension to the commentary that makes it really layered and really interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, the obviously, a lot of people opted to pass back over in, like, the 50s and 60s. But like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s and beyond, and something that Alison Hobbs touches on in the book is that conversations about like passing an identity, they kind of fell out of fashion and like as conversations around and definitions around multiracial identity rose. So there are some people who maybe would have chosen to pass in the past who now felt like they had more options to be able to describe their identity and maybe embrace both halves of their identity in a way that they didn't have before. I think there's a lot. I, I would be really curious to read a book that actually focused on specifically like the intersection of those two sort of like Black cultural phenomena, like passing and also like the birth of sort of like our modern understandings of multiracial and biracial identity because there's a lot going on up in there. I'm not yeah. going to write that book, but somebody should. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, just like the time period right now, it's just so much easier to imagine these choices and decisions in, you know, removed from our kind of current time, you know, and, and like reality. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, it's just really interesting to kind of think about like there's still people flirting with these choices and flirting with like maybe even more so the feelings behind these choices, like just the racial anxiety that we were kind of talking about in the first half. Yeah, I hadn't necessarily gotten there, but I'm curious to read the Johnston's essay from 2022. <laughs> Hopefully we'll have to look forward to because that will be some That'll good be mess. Something. But yeah, thank you for taking this journey with us. <laughs> if you saw the film, let us know. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can tweet at us at For Colored Nerds on Twitter. You can also find us on Instagram at For Colored Nerds and you can find me on Twitter at BM Loose. You can find Eric at E Eddings on Twitter. But yeah, we want to know your thoughts. Did you like it? Did you hate it? Have you read the book? What do you think about Lawrence mm. Otis Graham? Let us know. <laughs> <laughs> All that and more next time. Next time. Come. For Color Nerds was created by me, Eric Eddings, and Brittany Luce. It's supported by our production team at Stitcher, including producers Alexis Williams, Willis Arnold, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Casey Hofer is our technical director, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And look, y'all, we love hearing from our listeners. We love y'all so much. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought of this episode. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at For Colored Nerds. And never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.